0: in Malaysia, where the government continuously uses criminal laws to actually approach being LGBT. Recently, there was a gay couple that was keen for being gay, and there's also a lesbian couple who were keen for attempted lesbian sex. And then the arguments that our government always uses, whether they're minister, whether they're parliamentarian or a mufti, they will always say that being gay, there's no space for you in Malaysia, because it's not Asian to be gay.
1: This is the Belongings podcast series, produced by the ASEAN Soji Caucus with the support of Voice. Belongings is a prologue to the upcoming Southeast Asian Queer Cultural Festival in 2021. The series name has three elements. B means to exist. It shines the light on the existence and identity of the LGBTIQ. Longing is inspired by the word Karinduan in Bahasa Indonesia or Bahasa Melayu, and Pangungulila in Filipino. It's the yearning for a region that is caring, inclusive, and respectful of diversity. And lastly, Belonging. It stands as a reminder that the LGBTIQ people have always been part of the ongoing memory of the Southeast Asian region. In this episode, we talk to Michelle Yasudas, a lawyer and human rights defender in Southeast Asia. She is a senior legal advisor at the International Commission of Jurists. She describes herself as biracial, bisexual, and bilingual. Michelle is a Malaysian national, but she speaks to us now from her home in Yangon, Myanmar.
0: I feel that I'm quite privileged to be in Myanmar during such a time because uh, even this year. It was um, Myanmar's, I think, second time where they did the public pride on a boat. And I think it's the first pride celebration on a boat and also one of the biggest in Southeast Asia. So I think there's a lot of hope for what I've seen. But of course, I'm, I'm an outsider and I'm just learning from all the people here. So it's very uh, broad based and also. People from all over the country are working towards having a more representative way of asserting themselves and taking up space in public about reconciling what their histories are with also the military administration. And I think in the news, what's very promising is that there are the November 2020 elections and there's actually a candidate who is openly queer. And this person is actually using their platform constructively to talk about being queer in Myanmar, which is very complex, but also very powerful, I think. So there is a lot of hope, but then, of course, also lay with Myanmar's complex political history of the conflict, access to land, identity, and then, of course, the socioeconomic problems that continue to exist in Myanmar, where people are not getting access to adequate medication, to the economic spaces, to the market. So those challenges are still there. So whenever we talk about, you know, as many interesting and incredible advancements there are for queer people in Myanmar, like I do see them as emerging leaders in this space, but also you can't divorce that from the overall socioeconomic problems in the country. So I think it should be a conservative outlook in that sense where there should be improved spaces and access for everybody, especially for queer people as well.
1: Aside from working on strategic litigation on SOGI and giving legal aid to the LGBTQ community, Michelle also contributes research, legal analysis, and even reports on the systemic discrimination of LGBTQ people.
0: I was approached by Kueh Lapis and I thought Kueh Lapis is a Malaysian initiative where they've been trying to get access to different people to write about being queer in Malaysia and as well as Southeast Asia. So I basically was thinking about all the work that we've been doing in the International Commission of Jurists, where we have colleagues who work in India, colleagues who work in Pakistan, colleagues who work in Thailand. And so a lot of interesting developments have actually been happening in the space of Asia itself in the last few years, from courts, from the parliament, we also have Bhutan and then, well, I'm stuck in Malaysia specifically, where the government continuously uses criminal laws to actually approach being LGBT in Malaysia. Like recently, there was a gay couple that was keen for being gay. And there's also a lesbian couple who were keen for attempted lesbian sex. And these cases, I think some of them are still in court. And then the arguments that our government always uses, whether they're minister, whether they're parliamentarian or... A mufti. They will always say that being gay, there's no space for you in Malaysia because it's not Asian to be gay. Especially with our former Prime Minister twice, Mahathir Mohammed, he always said Malaysia is quite Islamic, not a place for being gay. And he was also a big champion for Asian values. So I also just felt that this article was an important time to actually look at all the gains that were had in Asia because you also have Taiwan legalizing same-sex marriage and then you have Korea, you have uh, quite many countries with positive developments. So I felt that, especially for Malaysians, what might help our you know, queer siblings and also activists and people who are working with us is to actually arm ourselves with knowledge and the fact that there's a lot of progressive jurisprudence happening in Asia based on Asian values. So then I thought, to build on that, to show that courts actually see it as a powerful tool to give people access to their rights that are already in treaties that countries have signed on to. Because you have the UN Convention, say on CEDAW, the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. You have the ICCPR, all these different UN conventions. And once your country has signed on to it, your country already has a duty to protect rights of equality, non-discrimination, Privacy, all of those rights are already actually supposed to be part of your law. And then so whenever countries use the excuse of you being part of an Asian country, therefore they have the right to deny you your rights, that's absolutely incorrect. My piece was also to show that governments have a positive obligation to not exclude LGBT people from domestic frameworks of legal protection. A lot of the time, the people that are given the power and the privilege to frame what being Asian is you tend to look to people who are in the news, people with a lot of economic, social, and political power. And then so when these specific people are the ones that are given access to the most powerful spaces in media, in the courts, in parliament, then the image of what being Asian starts to be formed by people who are not representing people in our countries. So we should start taking up spaces as people who are part of the grassroots, people who are activists, everybody and anybody should be taking up spaces and then start to carve out the narratives for one another, for each other, to write ourselves in history, to write ourselves in futures as well. Because I think an important part I've been learning from the Black Lives Matter movement and then also Afrofuturism movement is that a very important part that we don't talk about is taking up space it's one issue that we all could help one another with better. But then it's also being able to actually imagine ourselves surviving in the future and also to take charge of where we were written out in the past. And then so when we start to take control over all these powers and then where our voices appear, like, so I think this podcast is super important. It is then you start taking charge of your own narratives with people who have been fighting for this space with you. Because when you don't take up the spaces, then the spaces start being weaponized against you, as we are starting to see in all our countries. It's important for us to build counter-narratives around the people who are in power and then also to start thinking about how we can assert ourselves and our humanity. Because a lot of the time, I think we've been playing a role to let other people define what it is to be a citizen, what it is to be a person in our country. But the truth is, a lot of the time, the same problems occur when Women allow men to legislate on our wombs on sexual reproductive health. A lot of the time, the people who are making the laws have no idea how the laws impact anybody except themselves. So that's why, to me, it is important for us all to start challenging the existing power structure.
1: For Michelle, true belonging of the LGBTQ community begins with every individual.
0: How we become inclusive and how we are inclusive, it ends up to every single individual. For me, it's being conscious all the time in what we do, what we say, what we think, and then also how we relate to other people. I think it's always the act itself of challenging norms has to happen within ourselves. And then, you know, it's important to think about in the ASEAN context, I'm sure in every other country as well, is actually how we engage with the institutions that actually make these norms. And these are not only just the courts or the police, but also our parents, schools, the institution of the family, the institution of religion. And to a degree, actually, some of us do have access to these institutions. I understand also being queer, sometimes we distance from these institutions, but some of us, you know, still have ties with relatives. And sometimes these are the most homophobic people of all, the most transphobic people of all. And also when you're in Malaysia, the way I feel that um, homophobia has actually been tapped into our subconscious is the fact that, you know, we have all these laws that criminalize same-sex sexual relations, but then it's also so stigmatized because we had a deputy prime minister now MP who has been charged for uh, unnatural sex twice and it was done in such an unsavory, horrific public way. And then so a lot of young people, the first time they've ever actually heard about same-sex sexual relations or homosexuality is from that sordid court case. And also, for me as a lawyer at the time, like it was also a question of how much lawyers who were engaging with a case were actually engaging with the stigma around it. I think all of us could have done better because it's about the narrative that we're consciously shaping all the time. And the duty is still on us now in the aftermath. We have been exposed to several sex scandals of politicians. And then whenever we engage with these things, these people in our lives, it's about setting moral, ethical standards that we should be holding ourselves to, and then also trying to work with our friends on how to create better standards for ourselves. Firstly, taking our space is something that we have to navigate with. But then it's also the language that we use on ourselves, amongst ourselves. Then looking at uh, places of harm, like sort of it will be socio-economically, where, you know, people can't access jobs, lack of discriminatory legislative mechanisms to protect people, and then also, of course, the court. So it's just um, seeing places of harm where you can actually fit in to work and address the harm and make things better for people. So it really comes down to where you see yourself and how best you can work with others around you. By coming
1: together, whether in physical or digital spaces, the ASEAN community can help each other find belonging.
0: Thanks for the opportunity for letting me speak about this because uh, I think that this podcast is a very important part of people actually starting to see themselves because I mean when you're queer especially in Asia I think a lot of us if we think about when you first thought about being queer maybe 10 15 years ago a lot of it was a lonely journey for a lot of people and then the loneliness was not merely finding friends but also intellectually emotionally sometimes spiritually as well this is actually a very important common space that you've all created. Because I think something that ASEAN, we're very conscious about, is that we do not have a common language, common value, because the concept of ASEAN itself is more political and economic than anything else. But if you look at our people who are from, say, the African Union or from Latin America, they do have existing courts and existing thought processes and mechanisms that actually protect them at a larger scale. And so ASEAN, I understand that there's the ASEAN Declaration, and then there's also the ITR mechanisms. But it's important that we start engaging without any of these mechanisms. We're all trying to find our common history and also asserting ourselves in the present. Sometimes what is often left out is that we should also start thinking about ourselves existing, surviving and thriving in the future. Because then when we start to really fasten ourselves in future thinking, you know, in some sort of like ASEAN queer futurism framework, then we can really think about how will my actions impact another queer Malaysian in seven years from now, a hundred years from now it is that's when we really start feeling the duty of doing the work and not pushing it until the time which is better. Because in the Malaysian context, as well as perhaps Indonesia, people always like to use the word sabar, like be patient, you know your time will come. But the truth is, if the time is not now, the duty will then be passed on to someone else. So I am very glad to be part of this common discussion and I hope to continue engaging all of you in this manner.
1: To listen to more Belongings podcast episodes and to stay updated on the upcoming Southeast Asian Queer Cultural Festival in 2021, follow the ASEAN Soji Caucus on Facebook or Twitter at ASEAN Soji and on Instagram at ASEAN Soji Caucus. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license.